Uh, If you would, please turn open to Nehemiah chapter 11. We have a few more weeks uh, this week and then two more to finish this study out. I I pray it's been an encouragement to you. I pray it's been uh, an understanding sermon uh, sermon series in terms and study in terms of uh, just being reminded of what God is calling us to as a church. And also personally. Uh, this morning, we will be looking at the characteristic of kingdom sacrifice as we look to see and seek to build healthy spirituality with one another and in the church. So, Nehemiah chapter 11. I'm realizing I forgot to practice the pronunciations, so bear with me. <laughs> now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, and sons of Perez. And Maaseiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kalhose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joir. Joiarib, son of Zechariah, son of Shulanite, all sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Jahed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Maaseiah, son of Ithael, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was the overseer, their overseer. And Judah was the son of Hasanua, the second over the city. Of the priest, Jediah, the son of... That's the one that got me last time. Yoiarib, Yakin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Merioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822, and Adiah, the son of Jehoram, Jeroham, son of Peleliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malkijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242, and Amashiah, son of Azarel, son of Ahazai, son of Meshulamoth, Son of Immer and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadilolim. And the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrikam, son of Hashibaiah, son of Bani, and Shabbatai, and Yozabad, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside of the work of God. 
and Metaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of praise, who gave thanks, and Bakbukayah, how about that for a name, huh? <laughs> name one of your children that. That's cool. The second among his brothers, and Avda, the son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Yaduthan. All the Levites of the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers who kept watch over the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites who were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants live in Aphel and Ziha and Gishpah, where were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Metaniah, son of Micah, the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, and the sons of Zerah, the sons of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages and their fields, and some of the people of Judah lived in Kerioth Arba and its villages, and Debon and its villages, and Jacobzael and its villages, and Yeshua in the Muladah and Beth Pelet in Hazar Shual in Beersheba and its villages, and Ziklag and Mekonah and its villages, in Enriman, in Zorah, in Yarmuth, Zanoah, Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Ezekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward to Michmash, Aijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hezer, Ramah, Gataim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley of craftsmen, and the certain and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Lord, help us understand why you saw fit to record things just like this. When we might think it's insignificant, we want to learn how to be your people in your place, experiencing your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue in the story of God's people securing God's place to experience his presence, in many ways, I think this chapter foreshadows the experience of the New Testament church and how we experience church today. Jerusalem was the place of God's presence in the temple, and it was the place that all the nations could come and know they would see the God and interact with the God of Israel. And those who were uh, there to rebuild are in the restoration of a physical place, a physical building, but they're also rebuilding spiritually what's going on, what's been lost by the exile. Uh, they're rebuilding spiritually what was the reason for the exile of faithlessness and disobedience toward the Lord. But they are rebuilding worship of God that flows from hearts of consecration all because of God's grace. They've seen God. They've heard God through his word. And they want now to respond to him and say, God, we want to do it your way. We don't want to try to mix it up or, or manipulate you into doing it our way. 
And now, where that was the experience of God's people in the Old Testament, now God's people are his city. No longer will, when Jesus uh, died on the cross and the, the temple of the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was ripped from top to bottom, was a demonstration of God as a physical demonstration that no longer would his presence be kept behind a curtain uh, because we were too unholy and impure to access it. Now his presence was available to everybody that would surrender their lives to him and trust Jesus for salvation. So now we today are, we are to be faithfully living under God's rule and God's reign so the culture around us sees resurrection life, experiences the presence of God. And now we, we want to, all of these have committed, remember the last chapter ended, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. We will not neglect the house of God. Those who live in the city have committed to the house of God, but not all of them live in Jerusalem. There were those who lived in the city who would oversee the worship of God, but all those who surround the city were those to, they were supposed to come to the city to experience, basically they were supposed to come to church and experience the worship that was restored in the temple, in the rebuilt temple. So the people who live in the city were those that prepared for those who would live in the villages to visit the city. But all of us have a role in this. And the first thing that we see is there's, there's God's call that's going out. So there's those that live in the city and those that live in the villages. But God's call is going forth for both of those to operate and obey, uh, really respond to God's call and how he's given them his call. And they, they, first, they're responding to what God is doing. People need to live in the city. When they cast lots, this is a weird thing. This was a regular way of discerning God's will in the Old Testament. Like it really, really was kind of like a magic eight ball. You ask a question, shake it up, see what floats to the surface. It, and admittedly, it's very mysterious to me how God used this method of discernment. Remember the Urim and Thummim that's in the vest of the high priest, the chief priest, Aaron's descendants? Those were a bit of like dice that they would, as rocks that they would kind of put down on the ground and see what God said. It's weird. But God, in his sovereignty and in his providence, in his control over everything, he superintended upon that practice so his people could know what he wanted them to do. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, do we, do we all as believers have the pack of dice in our back pocket that we just kind of, all right, it's time to figure out what God wants. <laughs> no, I, I do believe with the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and being indwelt by God himself, we get to listen to his voice not try to figure out what he's trying to tell us to do. We have an internal sense now of God's direction and his guidance and his discerning and his will. But we see in the Old Testament, lots were cast for Jonah on the ship and the lot fell on him because God wanted to get Jonah's attention when he was asleep in the bottom of the boat running away from his call. But we also see in the New Testament, there's a couple instances in the New Testament. Remember, there's, they cast lots for Jesus' garments. The soldiers did. 
But they also cast lots, the apostles did, to replace Judas. Because they needed the twelve to be completed. And they believed that was a call. And Matthias was chosen by lots. Now, because now we have the Holy Spirit, we understand how we are to interact with this. We're not to be casting lots. No, no magic dice or eight ball. But there was a reason they needed to cast lots to populate the city. Because you had a lot of people that were like, no, I'm good. I don't want to live in the city. I, I got my land. I got stuff happening there. Um, no, I'm not going to give that up to live in the city. They, they had to choose who would live in the city. Leaders were there, but they needed more people to populate the city. And, and this, at this time, remember, it was to be a city that functions more than just being a spiritual hub. It was a commercial hub. It was a political hub for God's people. So they needed people there to make those things happen effectively. And those who dwelled outside the city were reluctant to move into the city because it meant leaving their land, which was their primary source of provision and wealth and what they would leave on to their children. Your land is where you grew your crops. It's where you raised the sheep. It's where you grew your investments. That's, that was your portfolio. It was your land that you had. And while everybody today seems to be going back to the cities and wanting to go back in there, and there's a huge need uh, for the people of God to return to cities just like secular America is, is occupying cities. This, not, this is not the thought back then. It, it, was, it was risky to go back into a city that had its walls just rebuilt and we have to figure out, wait a minute, is it going to be safe? It was a physical danger. But it also was a financial risk to do this because not enough people in the city mean you still didn't make any money. I mean, I think this is a... This, interaction of people who are called to live in the city and leaders that were there. I think in foreshadowing what this would be for the New Testament church, I think it's a good picture for pastors who have responded to God's call to care for the church. Pastors sacrifice a lot to see the kingdom advance in the hearts and lives of God's people. And now pastors, we are commanded to be content with what we have. It doesn't mean we take a vow of poverty. It means when needs are provided for. But, but the Apostle Peter says to pastors, don't go out and be a pastor for shameful gain. Back in the 1800s in Germany, George Mueller, uh, who ended up later on uh, opening an orphanage in Bristol, England, uh, and cared for nearly 10,000 children during the span of his ministry there, he went to, uh, to school at Halle University to be a pastor because the two highest paying jobs in Prussia, in Germany, in the 1800s were an attorney and a pastor. Go figure. So he was, the Apostle Peter says, don't do it for shameful gain. So there's, there's several different, money is shameful gain. And there are pastors who play on the emotions of people for shameful gain. And it's, it's uh, a travesty to the gospel when a preacher says, you have to give money to my ministry in order for your prayers to be answered. It's akin to um, indulgences of the mid-centuries in the Catholic Church that Martin Luther railed against. It's equivalent to that. There, there's, some, there's a shameful gain that comes. And, 
and, and the gospel is confused and there's fog around it and then people are confused. Well, I gave my money. I'm not healed. I don't have my jet. I don't have a job anymore. And it provides so much confusion. You know, just to help us understand how we're supposed to live. And that, that's called an overrealized eschatology, uh, eschatology, the study of end times. When we get to heaven, it's going to be great and glorious and we're all going to be rich. But today, faith doesn't, doesn't equal rich. So when we trust God, when we look at Hebrews 12, it's a great place to go to. There are those that conquered lions. There are those that healed people. And God did miraculous things uh, through because of their faith. But you know what? As you keep on reading, there's a few sentences that you get to. Because of one person's faith, they were sawn in two. That's not a lack of faith that they were sawn in two. No, it was because of their faith they were sawn in two. So no matter what trajectory God has for us, if you are wealthy, it's because God wants you to make sure that the church is, and the church is advancing and the, the people in the church who work in the church are cared for. But if you, if you got, hey, you might be living a life. It's like, look, it's paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. All right, still be faithful. Still be faithful because we all want to live by faith. We all want to do that. So Peter says, don't do it for shameful gain. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for prestige. Don't do it for control over people. And sadly, there have been too many pastors who have abused the authority that Jesus grants to the, the role of a pastor for shameful gain, for control. Maybe you have an experience of that in your own heart, in your own life. It's like, you know what? It was just bad. Just, it was so controlling. God, God wants healing for you. Now, the inheritance for pastors, and it goes back even to the Levites. It's a spiritual inheritance that is, that's what I look for. I, I hope and pray that at the end of my ministry as a pastor, Hopefully, I've got a lot of years left. But I would love to see your children and your grandchildren, possibly your great-grandchildren, loving Jesus. That's why I do this. And there's more that God wants to bring into his kingdom, and we do it for that. We do it for that. You know, the Levites in the Old Testament were not given an allotment of land. They were spread out all through the land in order to serve the spiritual needs of the people. Now, in this casting of lots, we see there's a reluctance of people. Oh, great, the lot fell to me. I've got to give up everything and move to Jerusalem. But there was also a willingness that was found, and they were celebrated. So there's a reluctance and a celebration happening in these responses of people who are entering the city. We see this in the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah where Jeremiah was a very reluctant prophet. I'm too young, God. Can't do this. Nope, it's not going to work. And he's, what's God's response? Uh, I knew you in your mother's womb. So don't tell me you're too young. I know you. And I'm going to give something to you and I'll put it in your mouth and your mouth's going to become sanctified and you're going you're to you're honor me and obey me and it's going to be good for you. But you know what? As Jeremiah was a reluctant prophet, things didn't go great for him thrown into a well. At one point, he's like, I'm not preaching anymore because nobody's responding. 
And then he talks about in verse chapter 20 how there's this fire shut up in his bones and he has to say something. And finally he says, I got, I got no more tears. I'm not even going to cry anymore over God's people because they're so hard-hearted. He's happening before the exile. He's letting everybody know, hey, you're faithless, you're disobedient, pay attention to God and, and repent and serve him. By contrast, you have Isaiah that's saying in chapter 6, here I am, send me, I'll go. Because he saw something so unique in the vision that God gave him of his glory. And he, it compelled him to go. It compelled him toward obedience. Now, both of these guys, they had to live some really dark, deep valleys. But they remembered their calling. And when they remembered their calling, it buoyed them to say, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. Either way, they stuck with God's call. And it's common to think that pastors are holy enough to avoid big issues and struggles in life. But that is far from the truth. We struggle. In many ways, because we're weak men seeking to do an eternal work, and the weight of that eternal work and it not happening like is, is sown in our hearts provides a struggle. So I, I, and I'm, I'm describing this to ask you, please pray. For your pastors. Please pray for us. I've heard oftentimes that pastors aren't in touch with the real world, like we're in some kind of incubator that prevents us from getting in contact with the real world. I was reading a book a few weeks ago, and a, a response of a pastor said, actually, I think I'm more in touch with the real world than most people because I'm in touch with the broken marriages and the disobedient children that parents can't get their hearts over, the deaths that happen within God's community, and the stress of just how we're going to make it. And that sometimes happens in a week. So we're all feeling life. We're all feeling life. On a daily basis. Now, while a pastor's call may be specific to kind of move into the city, everybody has a call. We're all called to minister. If we live in the villages, we're coming to visit church, all of us have a call. And Ephesians highlights this. The Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's not just talking about pastors. He's talking about every blood-bought believer whom God said, I have grace upon you, and here's the gift of faith to trust me. And then we have leadership in the church. Ephesians 4 lets us know that. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, look, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are all called, and if we, if we have found a home here at Christ Community Church, everybody has a call. You're, you're in your location where you live, but everybody's called to invest uniquely here for the work of ministry that it may go forth and God may be glorified. Everybody is called to minister 
gospel life, resurrection life. But there's a surrendering to that call that needs to happen. And here's where the lists of people come in. Because these are real people. Even though we struggle with how to pronounce their names because most of us don't know Hebrew. We, we, these are real people that God wants us to recognize. Hey, this one served me and his family. They served me. Each name represents a person who sacrificed for God's kingdom to advance here on this earth. And now we benefit from that. For his glory to cover the earth. Each name represents a significant and serious sacrifice for God's kingdom. Now, a lot of times we could be wanting our names to be inserted in a list. But really the only list that matters is if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Now, if it's written there, we have obligation to obey and we have responsibility to see God's glory and sacrifice for his kingdom advancement. But each name also represents a family that was committed to passing on the truth of God's word to future generations. He's the sons of, sons of, sons of. There's an old warning that I heard years ago uh, for for church, for families, for parents. It says that while one generation experiences the gospel in salvation, the next generation's temptation is to assume the gospel because they've seen it in others. And you may have heard a young person say, I don't have one of those cool testimonies like those people. That's like you experience the gospel. The temptation for them is to think they, they just assume the gospel is there all the time. But you know what happens to the third generation? They forget the gospel. So we, we could be just three generations away. That's why it's like, no, no, no. We, let, let's equip for the work of ministry. And, oh, it's our families. That's our families. Discipling our families and reading the glorious good news over and over and over again. You know, we were... It's sort of pointing out, but sort of teasing Owen the other night that, you know, every time we went to go read, we, Jesus Storybook Bible is a fantastic resource. We'd go, every book that we got, he always wanted to go to David and Goliath. Every single time. I'd read another story, and he'd say, can, can we read David and Goliath? He'd be patient, let me finish that story. It's like, son, are you listening to any of this? I don't know. But we'd go to David and Goliath, and you know what? I've seen God use that in his life so often to trust the Lord. When things get to be too big, we trust Jesus in the situation. So look, we pay attention to that stuff and we just, we want, oh, I've, I've, I've raised my kids and now it's, the, now it's the weird feeling that my youngest daughter is getting ready to graduate high school. So five of my kids are gone, one left at home. It's a weird feeling. I love a full house. That's why we had a lot of kids. But I've always wanted them to know two things. I love them. Well, three. I love them a lot. Nothing will change that. I love them a lot. God loves them more than I do. And the third thing is this. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. Because Jesus rose from the dead. There's no magical formula. 
It's just the genuineness and the, the authenticity that says, my life is for the Lord. I love John Bunyan's resolution that just says, I resolve to live upon a God who is eternal and invisible. I just live upon him. I love that. That's what we do. I have to find my place again. These lists represent dads who bring their families to church. Dads who are serious about the responsibility to sacrifice in order to see God's people experience his presence in his place. And there's a shared kingdom sacrifice that's occurring too with the people who move into the city and still the ones who are surrounding the city in their villages. And look carefully at who moved into the city and let's all feel the challenge to surrender to God's call as his church. Verse 6, valiant men. Valiant men had a name. Sacrifice to make sure God's people were cared for. Men of valor, verse eighteen and uh, verse eight and verse fourteen. Men of valor. These are courageous men. Probably on the battlefield, they have all the awards you can get for their service. In verse eleven, we have ruler of the house. Verse sixteen, outside workers, the ones who cared for everything outside, not neglecting anything. Verse 19, we have security. They showed up to make, every, make sure everybody was secure in God's place. In verse 21, we have overseers, those who are looking at how to strategically care for all the things that happen. And in verse 22, we've got a bunch of singers. These are sons of Asaph, who we have a bunch of psalms from. He was a songwriter. There were singers there. Now, if this is a picture of the church today, it doesn't mean that everybody who who has these roles in the church is fully employed by the church. It means when you come in from the villages, you serve. And you serve the people. See, the ruler of the house is the moms. Just moms who rule the house, but not from a, you're going to do it my way, from just that gracious sacrificing for the kingdom. So I'm going to change another diaper and I'm going to deal with another, another snotty nose and I have Miss Church again. Sir, your sacrifice today is building your children into the kingdom. Do not overlook any small action. Do it all by faith. Do it all by faith. Oh, man, I remember those days when sicknesses just like would circle us. Everybody would get it and then go right back around and sometimes three times. I always left because I worked at a church. So I had to show up on Sundays when my wife cared for and loved our children and all the sickness. Of course, I'm, I'm the type of dad's like, suck it up, let's go. But... My wife is way more compassionate because usually it means they have strep throat or they have a real sickness that could do some harm. And I'm like, why are you complaining so much? You know why? Because I'm the son of a nurse. That's why. It's right back there. Man, we, my brother and I tease. We had, like, appendages had to be falling off for us to miss school. It's like, man. <laughs> is there blood? Nope. Go to school. Look, we, we want to recognize that there's an even playing field for all the servants of God. 
what we see here in all the different types of people who moved and served, there was no favoritism. There was no partiality. There was no special preference given. They just showed up and they served. And they were all unified in serving God in his kingdom advancement. So what is our mission? We have a mission of God's call. We need to respond to his call. And once we know his call, we've got to surrender to his call. But then we've got to we got to do the call. We, gotta, we have a mission in front of us. And God is building our church. We are together as a hospital. A safe place for the weak and the wounded to come find healing and peace and security through Christ. And everybody plays a role. This is what God's building us for. So we value gathering together. We value the, the steps to grow in our faith. And we value going. We don't remind ourselves of the Great Commission every week just to conclude something. It's a reminder that lets us know there's a responsibility that awaits me outside of this place to be salt and light to a world that is hurting, a world that hates God, and a world that thinks that God is the reason for their pain. Here's our action. Jesus gives it very clearly in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how, shall, be, how it's, uh, shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or a stand. And it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're lights. We're salt. Salt that, that makes people... The life you're living, it's different than mine. What is it? That saltiness. Make us thirsty. Make people thirsty for the, the truth of God's word. So think of, think of who, when, when you are not here, who are you in touch with? Neighbors, workplace, families. Think of all the unbelievers that you are in touch with. That's on purpose. Those are the villages that you are in. And so all of us surrendering to the mission that God has for us means that we just say, God, I want to be salt and light in the, but, but think of the people. How many people? Let's say, just a very conservative estimate, you, you are interacting with 20 people in the course of your week. Now think about everybody else. There's some, some who run corporations, some who are in schools. It's hundreds. Now let's think of our kingdom impact. The people that we are in touch with, that's on purpose. So our church, when we go out, oh, we are reaching the world. Amen? We are reaching potentially 1,000 people, 2,000 people. That's the go. Go be salt and light. Go live under the, the rule and the reign and the authority of God that the world sees a benevolent authority, not a domineering, authoritarian, but a God that is benevolent with his authority, but benevolent with his grace, benevolent with his love. He exudes love over us. 
Because that's what the world needs to see. That's what the world needs to feel. So whether it's in your home with your children or in a workplace, all the places in between, let's be on for the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? Let's be on. Let's be thinking. Let's be asking the Lord in the grocery store. God, give me a word for this lady right now or this young man who's checking me out. Not checking me out, but doot, doot, doot. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to get weird. <laughs> Are they hurting? Yeah. They got an issue going on someplace. They got trouble. They're facing some trouble. So we just simply say, how are you doing? You know, a trick that I've used many times and it works. Use their name back to them. They got a name tag on. They will catch your eye. You said my name? Because something unique happens when somebody uses our name, right? Because it shows a tenderness. It shows love. It shows Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to image him. We want to image Jesus through our lives. So where do we go? We go. We go where God has us. We go where he's planted us. We go where our feet are. That's where we go. But we're looking, not not just paying attention to where we're walking, but looking, God, what's your heart for the people around me so I can be on mission for you and be salt and light? Let's be reminded. So Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, help us fulfill the mission. Help us surrender. Help us respond to your grace. You know, it's in in, uh, verse 18 of Matthew 28. Jesus comes and says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the one. He's the boss. So we're, we're going out, participating in what he's already doing. He's already wooing people to him. He's already winning souls to him. We just get to go out and figure out where he's doing that in our lives and participate with him. So let's be reminded. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless us.